I want to slow down and slowing down doesn't mean stop working hard. I am in the process of readjusting what my definition of success and self-worth is. Hi, I'm Kavalo Broy and this is Design This Way. On today's episode, I have with me Ishita Jan. Ishita is an illustrator and graphic designer from New Delhi. She's a graduate of National Institute of Design, Ahmedabad, and she is currently pursuing her master's in illustration as visual essay at School of Visual Arts, New York. She loves to document moments from her life and travels in her sketchbooks. And she recently co-authored and illustrated her very first book, The Girl Who Went to the Stars and Other Extraordinary Lives, which was published by Penguin Random House India. On today's episode, we talk about Ishita's journey as a designer and about how she acquired the obsessive habit of documentation through sketching. She also shares with us her struggles in finding a right work-life balance and her efforts to build sustainable work habits. Ishita is the first guest on the podcast who is currently in a design school. So we talk at length about her student work and the work in process of her MFA thesis project. Now, I present Ishita Jain. Ishita, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kaval. Thank you so much for having me here. I've been listening to your podcast for so long and it's such an honor to be here today. I'm glad you took out your time for this podcast episode because like your visit in India right now is like really short and you're coming from New York right now. Uh, yeah, so while I was researching about you, I learned that you have a mild obsession with squids. At one point, you also found this baby squid which you dissected. Tell us about that story. Yeah, so um, as a kid, I was always fascinated by the sciences mm-hmm. while not thinking of them as the sciences. Like I grew up going for a lot of hikes with my father. So I was always fond of collecting things I found in forests or beaches. And uh, when I was in 11th grade, um, I opted for medical Mm-hmm. for about a month for uh, the international listeners uh, it means you're studying biology in yeah, your school yeah for yeah so that means that after my 10th grade examinations i was studying physics chemistry bio math english right uh, at school and uh, and i was doing it for a month and in that month i realized i hated physics i hated chemistry i hated math <laughs> <laughs> the only thing i really loved was bio Right. But I ended up shifting my stream to arts mm-hmm. and in the Indian education system when you study like history, geography, fine arts, there is no scope for introducing any of the sciences right. in that curriculum. Right. So I always had this latent interest in biology that was kind of like a hobby for me and mm-hmm. I was never able to formally study it. And uh, a really close friend of mine ended up going to Korea for one of these science olympiads which were these science exams that used to happen and he told me that he had dissected a squid over there mm-hmm. and i was just fascinated because animal dissections were something that we never did at school and 
I'm a Jain, so that means I grew up in an entirely vegetarian household. I'd never even like held an egg before. <laughs> But I was so I was right. even more fascinated by skeletons, like the innards of animals. You know, when he told me about this, I looked up dissection videos on YouTube. I read all about squids, and uh, it so happened that year that we had gone on a family holiday to um, Kerala, and I was walking along the beach. and i saw at that time i thought it was a squid it was only many years later that i discovered it was a cuttlefish oh yeah okay. but i found this tiny little squid and i picked it up and i <laughs> carried it back to my hotel room and i asked my uncle for his scissors like i knew he had a pair of shaving scissors and right. he happened to ask why do you need them <laughs> and i said i want to cut it up and he was like No, no way. <laughs> so you know, like right. whatever stones and twigs I found on the beach, and I, in my head I was like, "This is already dead." So I'm, I'm not killing anything. Right. I'm just trying to explore. So from whatever I'd seen of videos, I was like, "Oh, that's the heart. That's the eye. You know, that's the mouth." And I just spent my afternoon pulling it apart on the beach. Wow. And uh, since then, for a very long time, I was just. fascinated by squids as animals how was the feeling like while dissecting the squids it was pure curiosity like i was just like is this going to look like what i saw in that youtube video like like i could see you know and i'd seen growing up i'd also seen a lot of national geographic uh, shows and um, david attenborough's videos were right. part of my sleepovers growing up with my aunt so i was fascinated by the natural world so i was like will i see its ink sac and it did burst so i could like wow. i was carrying it in an empty coconut shell so i could see the black squid ink everywhere i was just fascinated <laughs> i was having a lot of fun wow and i follow your work closely especially your sketchbooks uh, one thing that stands out in all of your work is your handwriting and i don't know too many people who use long flourishes and calligraphic nuances in their regular handwriting uh how and when did you develop a beautiful handwriting like that so i can attribute a lot of my interest to simply how i was raised and where i grew up and as a kid i remember this one incident that i think i was in third grade or something and i had a social studies class and i got my notebook back from the teacher and it and you know the teacher had very angrily written did your parents write this it looks like an adult's handwriting <laughs> like uh, she called me in front of the right. class and i was like no that's my handwriting i wrote it and so she cut off her remark gave me two stars in my notebook and oh. i went back home very pleased that i have a very adult handwriting i went home and i told my dad and he blasted me he's like what's wrong with you why can't you write legibly like you know and like an 8 year old kid that you are and from that day onwards for the next few months he made me sit every day and do cursive handwriting notebooks just so that i have a legible handwriting wow so yeah yeah i was like at least 8 years old and i would do this every day for half an hour after school those cursive handwriting books for kids right and since then for a long time i had a very clear defined beautiful conventionally beautiful handwriting but I have easily been able to manipulate my handwriting. I can copy other people's handwriting to an extent and my handwriting continues to evolve. Were there other uh, things related to arts and craft you were uh, subjected to or you were interested in as a child? 
So again, I think from what I'm told, I always liked to draw as a kid and my family saw that early on and they encouraged it. Like right. even when I was... Like Dahiya says in the podcast. So there are only one kind of kids who love to draw. There are only two kind of parents, one who let kids draw and one who for some reason make them stop. Yeah. So I luckily I was surrounded by adults who encouraged me to draw. Like even before I could walk, they would give me crayons and newspapers and I would draw. And um, I was, again, I was in fourth or fifth standard. And I think my dad saw that I find joy in this. And two books he got for me, which I still remember. One was this book called, it's a giant book and I still right. have it. It's called I Can Draw. And it was a book with, you know, a section on humans, on cars, on animals, on birds, on insects with step-by-step instructions on how to break it down into shapes and draw. And like, I was hooked onto that book. The year he gave me that book for the next two years, people have birthday cards with insects on them, with Japanese women on them, with... um, cars on them, whatever was there in that book, I would turn it into a birthday card for someone. And he also gave me a book on calligraphy. Again, I must have been in fifth standard. And uh, I just instinctively, because I had this book in front of me and it had step-by-step instructions, I just, I picked it up and I used to sit and, you know, tape two pencils together and practice. I literally copy what was there in front of me and that's how my interest began. At that time, did you uh, ever think about making it as a career to some extent? Yeah, I think at that at that point of time, I was really too young to even think of what I want as a career. Like what I've wanted in my all whatever I can remember in my career is all based on whatever books I've been reading at that time. Mm-hmm. So there was this phase where I was reading a lot of Ruskin Bond around third, fourth grade. And I remember... I wanted to be an entomologist because one of the characters in the books wanted to be an entomologist and he loved studying insects. So right. for a few months, that was my obsession. I used to go to the British Council Library a lot and I used to love reading about rocks and gemstones. And for a while, I wanted to be a gemologist and an archaeologist. <laughs> and wow. by 10th grade, I wanted to, you know, I, I vaguely remember I wanted to study biotechnology. Uh-huh. But very soon I realized that I absolutely did not enjoy physics, math, chemistry. Yeah, other things that so come with it. all of that yeah. went out of the roof. And even by 11th standard, I was pretty sure that I would end up studying psychology and end up mm-hmm. in HR or something. And art was always just a hobby. Mm-hmm. Again, and I would always do crafts for fun, you know. And I had right. this one pair of my dad's jeans that I had cut up and made into a bag that I used to carry to school. And I remember this one friend telling me in 11th grade that, um, Ishita, not everybody has this talent. Use it. <laughs> and uh, the way she said it in passing stuck to me. And I was like, maybe I should consider it a little more seriously. And I should, in whatever way I can, prepare to apply for NID or Shishti you know, 11th grade was when I just thought, okay, I'll give them for fun. If I clear, I'll think about it. Right. But when she said that, I was like, maybe I should consider a little more intentionally to this line of work. Right. Uh, You finally chose NID to pursue your graduation, right? Yeah. How did you make that decision narrowing down to NID? Of course, it is a yeah, it is one of the preferred yeah. colleges for design in India. Honestly, at that time, I, I didn't know what design was. I had just had this notion that I like to draw. 
and wherever i'm going to go i'm going to draw no, there and i'll cute. figure things out and i really liked both nid and shishti when i visited the campuses and uh, but i've always listened to my parents as a kid even now i listen to them <laughs> and <laughs> and when they encouraged nid they were like it's up to you but uh, you know i could i could tell that they're encouraging nid so i was like wow okay <laughs> It's cheaper. I'll go there. <laughs> and uh, you might have expected something before getting into NID, and how was that expectation tallied with the reality? Honestly, I had no expectations going into NID, and I actually for anything I do, I rarely go in with a lot of expectations, which works very well for me. <laughs> like all I remember is like. you know most colleges start in august september and all i remember being is really upset that i had to leave in june <laughs> i wasn't ready to leave home that soon that's all i remember before nid but once i went there like nid was an incredibly special place for me because for a young child like my mind was exposed to so much in one go like my head was exploding every day and in retrospect knowing myself and the kind of person i am i work very well in academic structures right and i loved nid i loved not just the campus what was being taught but also the community and the way of life there right i have heard about that yeah and i am always been what you call an enthu cutlet so i was <laughs> i was excited to go for interaction i was excited to meet everyone i was over excited to see what all the courses were about right. it was quite annoying to other people <laughs> <laughs> but um i think it was a combination of being that young mm-hmm. and being curious and being exposed to a lifestyle like that that just together i was at the right time at the right place Right. And at th- that age, that young age in my life, whatever I learned at NID became a very integral part of my process of approaching anything. And how was the first few years of NID like? So, like according to me, when I look back, NID's first year curriculum is designed to inculcate hard work and discipline if you're receptive to it. Like it was openly said that your first semester is donkey work so you're literally repeating the same task again and again without thinking too much mm-hmm. but just doing you're drawing straight lines you're drawing circle after circle free hand just so that you get it and i took that very seriously so i was like my approach to anything was like if i keep working hard enough i'll get there and for the first year it was fine and i think over time i realized that there was this culture at nid you know to stay up all night or to pull all nighters to go the extra mile for projects all at the expense of your own sanity sleep health and this was not something that was encouraged by faculty per se but this was more this was just the peer culture over there it so happens right like the environment forces you to be in certain way yeah and that's reality i mean we can't escape that Yeah and at 18 years old 17 years old most people are really susceptible so the company and the environment in which you place them it molds you right and till date i mean i've been lucky enough to travel in and out of india to study at two other different schools i have never found a place that is as incredible as nid was for me but in retrospect i developed some really unhealthy and really toxic work habits while i was mm-hmm. there um and 
because those habits got stuck to me at at my formative years i right. spent the next 5 years after nid trying to undo those habits yeah what would you uh, what are the habits if you want to list down so after nid i was so used to the term slog being the mm. norm like the idea that work comes first or that it's completely acceptable for work to govern any aspect of your life right. um you know it was really ingrained in me and to the extent that you know i came back home i did my graduation project in delhi and i was staying at home and i used to be so wired up that time that if one hour of the day didn't go as according to my planning Man. you know i would i would get really anxious and uh, i kept saying that i love to work hard i love it i love yeah. it but i was quite miserable and mm. had it not been for my parents you know just day after day telling me to slow down slow down it could have been so much worse right now and um. i feel like as young students you feel the need or the urge to prove yourselves by just showing that you're slogging right i have also gone through that same phase yeah. in my life in my early 20s and i know exactly what you're talking about you end up thinking that working really hard to some extent is a virtue and especially not sleeping yeah. enough and you know spending your time just being on your desk is a virtue but it's not yeah and you know these changes once one acknowledging that you have right. a problematic work pattern takes time and second undoing it i think it's going to take me my whole life to undo it because mm. by nature now you know i tend to prioritize work right i am a perfectionist in my own way and if things don't go a certain way i do get stressed out again but at the same time i'm making all these realizations about overworking many many years after i'm done with nid while i was at nid i was really quite happy i i loved the way things were going nothing was at fault i was doing how things should be done and um, honestly there were some incredible things i learned there one of the courses that nid that really stuck to me and it's probably the reason why i keep my travel sketchbooks mm-hmm. is uh, in the first year we have this course called environmental perception and uh, you spend a week in a local village um, like you stay there and all you have to do is observe and document how people live their lives in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that part of uh, and you document know, through sketching yeah and so because when you're going to a rural village these people have a completely different way of life from our urban lifestyles we were encouraged to not use our cell phones mm-hmm. and we were encouraged to talk and document by sketching for me that was the first time that you know i wasn't scared of ruining a piece of paper anymore i was just drawing what was in front of me and i was out in the field i was exploring a new place i was talking to people i was seeing new things and i was drawing it was the perfect combination mm. and um, i really really loved it and after that course i don't think there has ever been a day that i've stepped out of the house without my sketchbook right like if i know i'm going to a new place there my sketchbook and paints will be there with me So in fact I was following your portfolio and your behance uh the most interesting thing that I found about your work at that time when you were still in NID versus other people that I was following was uh that you tried a lot of different things in graphic design itself you were making some projects where it involved stamps some projects where it involved paper cutting some projects where it's illustration some where it's pure graphic design was that a conscious choice to like 
dabble into a lot of things and not specialize in that? Um, I don't think it was a very conscious choice. It it was just what felt right to me. And I mean, I've been trained as a graphic designer. And for me, that means that if I'm designing for something or someone, the content for which I'm designing and the audience for which I'm designing is the most important thing. Right. That governs the medium with which I design. And that defined my approach as an illustrator as well. Mm -hmm. And like, and again, one of the basic fundamentals of who I am as a person is that I'm a curious person and I always want to try new things. I get bored easily. And at NID, again, it was very consciously in my head that, you know, for example, I didn't like web design, but I felt like I should explore it once. Right. Once I explore it, then I can make the decision that, okay, I'm never doing this again. But I very much felt like I'm in this amazing place. I have all these facilities with me not just graphic design, if I feel like exploring textile, I have the textile studio, I should walk in there and learn how to dye, I should go to the pottery studio, learn how to throw some clay. And I made full use of my time over there doing that just because I wanted to. It's something that I struggle with now because now that I'm in the US, uh, <laughs> right. it's a hyper specialized society. Like, you know, in India, my experience, even while I was freelancing was that the more you can do, Right. the more kind of work you can get. And in the US is like, from what I've seen in illustration is that if you have a very consistent and specific visual style that you're recognized for, right. you know, it's easier for people to hire you. It's an easier path right, to that right, conventional right. notion of success, you know. Yeah. And because art directors know what they want out of you. So uh, in your graduation project, you worked on packaging for a juice brand, right? Yeah. Like this cold pressed juice brand. Yeah, I worked on the branding and identity for this uh, cold pressed juice brand called Shud. I had just come back from an exchange semester and it was like six months of just experimenting. Also, the time that I was at NID, branding and packaging had been removed from the curriculum. So, okay. and I felt that it was really important to teach myself these basic things that were mm -hmm. probably going to be my bread and butter. Yeah, it so, is for graphic design. Yeah, so when I was looking for a graduation project, I didn't want to be over ambitious. I wanted to work on something simple but thorough. So I worked at under Mr. Sudeep Chaudhary, who was the creative director at Green Goose Design that time. And it's uh, an agency from New Delhi, right? Yeah, it's it's a design and PR agency in New Delhi. So Green mm. Goose Design was their design studio. So uh, for my graduation project, my mentor from NID was Professor Tarundeep Girdar. Mm -hmm. um, and he's been an incredible influence on my work. Like right from when we started graphic design and the basic fundamentals, we were always taught that whether we're designing a book or a form to reissue a library book, mm -hmm. every dot and every single line has its place. It's not there just for show. Right. It has to have meaning. And, uh, you know, this attention to detail and asking why is it there? What is it doing there? Right. Why should it be there? Should something else be there? All these questions, it was drilled into us by Tarun. So uh, it was a very good learning experience, you know, like I worked on very basic things that I should have known as a second year student, just refining type in Illustrator, refining, right. smoothening things, being more detailed, which I should have known as a second or third year student, but I was doing them much later. Mm -hmm. But it was fine because 
I learned a lot in four months, like developing the brand identity, exploring type design in both like Devnagri um, and I have this inherent tendency to bring illustration into my project. It just happens. (laughs) (laughs) But you still had to contain it to some extent where I have seen like the involvement of illustration was not as much as other parts of yeah it had to be scalable which means everything had to be done in vector illustrations that could be repeated and scaled across mediums right right right. and uh, i worked for six months at that studio but those six months were also enough to give me the insight that i probably don't like this way of working in a studio where i have no control over the content of projects i'm working with like for example that studio got a lot of fashion related branding projects and one month, two months, four months is fine. Beyond that, I just lost interest. So mm. for me, more often than not, it's the content that defines my interest than the medium, right. which is why my mediums are always changing. I'd much rather work with content that engrosses me. And uh, after that uh, experience in Green Goose Design, you worked as an in-house designer with Guesthouser, right? Yeah. Uh, how was that experience like? I mean, I have never worked in as an in-house designer with any uh, company. Yeah. And that's one of the things I have to check off my bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> so um, straight after NID, you know, I thought that I would take a tiny break for a bit and not work. But uh, it just so happened that... Uh, I even worked at NID for four months in their publication department straight after NID and I came back home in May and this company called Guesthouser had reached out to me through Behance and I had been talking with them and I was interested because it's about travel, it's about exploring new places, seeing new places and that's... For the listeners, uh, it's a startup that helps you book holiday homes, vacation rentals and uh, many other such combinations. Yeah. And they were interested in my travel sketches and this was the first time, you know, someone expressed oh. commercial interest in something I did as a hobby. So I was I was curious. And so I reached home towards the end of May. In the first week of June, I had a part-time job with them. <laughs> so uh, because it was a startup, so they were really flexible. Um, you know, I would go in thrice a week and essentially... They would tell me that, you know, these are the areas they need to address for their marketing purposes. Like they want to build impact in these cities Mm. and they want social media campaigns for those. And it was entirely up to me Mm. what I pitched to them, what I made of their problem statement. So I would talk to the web team, the business team, the photography team. Yeah. I would, you know, see how that startup was working, see what kind of stuff, what areas they were looking at and ultimately... We ended up hiring an animator who I worked with and together, her name is Rashmi Saini, together both of us worked on a range of four videos of their properties in four different cities in India. Ah. So it was a lot of fun because, you know, for example, I was doing Goa, then the video was based on the visual language of Goa. So whatever, if I took inspiration from Portuguese styles over there, the entire minute long video was derived from that. If I was doing it in Jaipur, it was based on how their homes and properties in Jaipur looked. So the video looked, in terms of visuals, completely different from the Goa video. And I had a lot of fun working on it because, one, I was working part-time. So thrice a week, I would get out of the house. I was meeting people. I was collaborating with other people, which was so much fun. Mm. And thrice a week, I would work on my own projects, you know. Mm. So for me... This job, which happened purely by chance, really helped me realize that 
for now, the ideal working situation for me is that I work part time, which gives me mental and financial stability. Right. And I freelance on the side, which gives me a lot of creative independence. That's nice thing that you were also thinking about how to structure your life and design your life to reflect what you really want to do. Yeah. Because a lot of people do not spend that time designing your own life. Yeah. And they end up having dissatisfaction with the work they do. Yeah. And for me, like, I had the privilege to explore and job hop yeah. for the first year that I was out of college. Like... I had a lot of emotional and financial support from my family in the sense that I could stay at home and I didn't have to worry about paying rent right. and that, you know, my parents were okay with me exploring for a year. But I was also very clear that in that one year of exploring that, you know, there are these three, I want to explore illustration, I want to explore publication design, I want to explore a little bit of interaction design. So right. I'm going to split my year into these projects and at the end of a year or two, maybe have a core focus that I want to mm. delve into further. Right. And that time was very important for me to kind of figure out that, okay, I've always had this instinct to turn things into illustration and I've kind of validated it by trying other things and now I can take the plunge, you know. Right. I'm ready to dedicate time to illustration. It doesn't feel like an indulgence anymore. It feels like I've thought it through. And talking about publication design, which you uh, practice right after that, yeah. uh, is your book, The Girl Who Went to the Stars. And it's published by Penguin Random House, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that. How did you get that project? So that was, again, that was pure coincidence. And I had so much fun working on that project. Um, a really good friend of mine, Parag, who was working on his graduation project at Penguin Random House in Gurgaon that time, had heard that one of the commissioning editors over there was looking for someone to do a book like this, but they wanted the same person to illustrate and write the book, uh -huh. which I thought was really interesting. And he suggested my name. The editor got in touch with me and it was a subject close to my heart. It was essentially, you know, a feminist children's book. And it, it's not the most original idea. There have been a lot of books that have been done like that. And, you know, um, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, I think when that book came out, it started a movement uh, for a lot of publishers to do a book like that in their own local context. Mm -hmm. And I was excited by it. It was the first time someone was trusting me to illustrate a full book and write a full book and also on a subject that's uh, close to your yeah heart. on a subject that I that really matters to me so I was like why not and uh, it so happened again that you know I didn't want to do the book alone it, it's a lot of time and effort to do that book and I know that I have my own opinions and there is a way in which I perceive feminism and I wanted to work with someone who thought differently than me, someone I could have healthy debate with, someone who would right. have different ideas about how the book should be. And it just so again happened by chance that I ended up working with Naomi Kundu, who was my roommate in my first year of college and is one of my closest friends till date. And it was an absolute joy to work on this book with her. And both of you had different point of view about yeah. the subject. Yeah, so essentially with the book, we had full control over the book. We didn't have right. an art director, so we could do whatever we wanted with the illustrations. And our editor has actually changed in the process of the year and a half we spent doing on the book also. But it was up to us to curate who are these 50, 60, 70, 100 women in the book. We ultimately decided on 50, but it was up to us to 
curate these those, uh, yeah those discussions discussions right and was a lot of research and i found it you know the process of writing an illustration is really similar for me because mm-hmm. to make a portrait or to do a small write up right. i have to research about the person you know where they grew up what they did where they lived what their hobbies were how did they find this profession you know and then i put all those things down in a word document i reshuffle it edit it to make it one coherent piece and it's the same process with illustration mm. i take a lot of information i make a lot of thumbnail sketches and then i cut copy paste and shuffle things around to come at the ideal sketch right and so it was really wholesome for me to look at writing and drawing as a practice together i really mm-hmm. enjoyed it and uh, so did naomi both naomi and i love to read books and naomi is an excellent editor like mm-hmm. the moment we would write one person's story both of us would sit on skype and we would kind of just read it out loud and when you read a children's book out loud you know your <sighs> editing process begins there right because you have to put yourself in your 5 6 year old seven selves shoes and what are the adjectives or what are the similes and metaphors that interest you you know right, right. like you know when kalpana chavla went into space her tummy felt like butterflies or you know the mm. earth looked like a football from space so like we we really spent a lot of time on those tiny details and trying to make it as interesting for our own childhood selves as possible and yeah that's one thing i really appreciate she is an excellent editor <laughs> shout out to naomi yes <laughs> i'm curious about the process of uh, creating a book apart from uh, let's say uh, making the content are there other things that you discovered while working on this project that you didn't expect that were part of yeah there was design, a lot of creation yeah there was a lot of things one is that contracts oh yeah <laughs> yeah you know this is the first time we had like this giant legal contract and we were like coming to terms with what what is the pay for children's books it's peanuts uh, okay <laughs> making peace with that um and uh, you know is it worth it to do a book with such a small budget and can we afford to do it those were things we asked ourselves um and clearing out the contract and making sure the terms were correct that took a good few months to get it out of the way before we had the conversation for the book in march mm-hmm. and the book only began in september i've heard uh, that from a lot of my friends who are uh, yeah. working with different publications so, that uh, the process is quite iterative just yeah. to get uh, the gear started yeah who's doing what yeah like yeah so the res- i mean the biggest part of the book was the research part of the book you know yeah so the research like we read about 2 300 women and like who are we to decide that you know this woman goes in this book and this woman doesn't like was there a concrete brief from uh, penguin in terms of the content that will go it was 100% up to us we had okay. full control so the like the only brief was that we need uh, these kind of stories yeah they essentially wanted to do stories of women from india's history uh you know with inspiring tales who had broken glass ceilings and could be interesting role models for young children right and within that framework it was entirely up to us and you know and we struggled with that for a really long time that you know what have we done who are we to judge mm. what is the top 100 and what isn't and this is something that our editor really like said to us again and again that 
this is your book so it's going to be biased by your likes that is true yeah. uh, which is one thing that people uh, forget that there's a part of whatever you create you can't be objectively exactly. unbiased yeah exactly and it took us time but ultimately it was embracing that hey this is our book there's obviously going to be a lot of people from the arts you know because there's going to be people whose stories mm. conventionally haven't been heard there's going to be some famous people but there's going to be a lot of people that we haven't heard about there's going to be stories that we find particularly inspiring and that we think young children will find inspiring mm. there's going to be a mix of all professions all regions of india and we were conscious of doing that and sometimes it would just come down to you know reading out the story and purely from a narrative point of view which story sounds more engaging to a small child so it was that it wasn't an objective exercise in you know these are the barriers are we what, like we had to decide for ourselves and we had a lot of interesting discussions like what is our definition of success is it being mm-hmm. the first to do something is it winning medals um you know or no or is it just going after something you really love and whether you mm. come from privilege or you don't come from privilege just going at it with all your heart is that success is that inspiring if that is inspiring to us then sure you know um and so each story was defined by its own context right you know like who did what where did they come from what were their circumstances and so we didn't have this any unifying notion that oh because this person has won this much medals we should write about it or because right. they've been the first to do it we have to write about it there wasn't any set bar right it was purely like was there something in that story that spoke to us which is one story in, in that book that you feel personally close to one of my favorite stories from this book was about a woman who i'd never even heard of before her name mm-hmm. is janaki amal and she was born in 1897 in a coastal town in south india mm-hmm. um one of her greatest achievements was that she created a special variety of sugarcane the sugarcane that grew in india at that time was not very sweet and mm-hmm. it had to be bought from other countries she was able to make a variety of sugar cane and because of which our sugar tastes sweet enough oh wow and she was doing so well at that time that a lot of her peers were jealous especially men which made it very difficult for her to find a happy work environment in india and she always had this philosophy that no matter what her work is what is going to survive Mm-hmm. So she moved to London to study more about botany and during this time the second world war was going on mm-hmm. and fighter planes used to bomb London frequently she was so determined and so attached to her work that she would hide under her bed during the bombings and the very next morning wipe off the shelves and get back to her work mm. and this dedication was insane like she researched thousands of flowering plants one of which was the magnolia plant and there's actually a a strain of magnolia which is named after her it's called magnolia cobus janakia mal mm. and it's such a wonderful story to tell to a child that you know there's a flower named after this woman who worked so hard in that field right and it, it was it was just really inspiring wow <laughs> and us checking out uh, the ratings and the reviews of this book on amazon brilliant 4.5 out of 5 that's one of the uh, scary parts of putting out your work yeah like this whole idea where now humans have started uh, rating everything out of 5 yeah and in a 
project you do for a client you don't get to see it so yeah like yeah. on your face here like it's right there you know people are going to yeah give their opinion directly to you honestly like and going back to the question you asked that you know what is the part of making a book other than content yeah, creation yeah, yeah. So books are funny business especially in the publishing cycle because you spend a whole year like in lost in your own thought doubting yourself pushing out content is it going to work are kids going to like it you do some minor tests you know but you really don't know how it's going to be received right. and then you forget about it for a year because <laughs> you know for a good 6 to 8 months you forget about it because it's gone for editing copywriting legal right. checks it's gone for printing and you've moved on you're working on a different project and then a year later it's back in the market and <laughs> you have to refamiliarize yourself with the book uh-huh. and honestly for me i left india right at the time where the book came out so i wasn't there is a huge part of promoting books going to yeah uh, you know book fest and that is honestly i think from what i know a good chunk of a book's promotion comes from that and yeah, you might have observed that people who just published a book are always on one or the other podcast or uh, conferences yeah, and so on or yeah. like articles you know there's yeah. a whole marketing team at a publishing house which is trying to get the book out there unfortunately for me just because i was in a different country i wasn't able to do school visits and book readings and i wish i had been able to do those but naomi single handedly she had a full time job <laughs> even then you know she would try to make time to do a few of these um right. and beyond that it it's just simply out of our control at this point and this book is out there in the world and it makes me so happy when random strangers send me a photograph of the book with their kids or tell me that their kids like listening to it that's all i can hope from like i've done my part and i've let it out in the world and <laughs> right so it's it's i've only heard positive things and um there have been kids who have told me like oh you know next time you do a book maybe you should have two pictures next to each other or you should have two pages which is just text that could be interesting to try but i love it when kids <laughs> critique my book it's 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 so nice yeah like and as you told during that time you were moving to us for your post graduation from school of visual arts in uh, new york i'm curious that you had fairly successful work life that was going on and why did you choose to go to sva for your post graduation when you were already having good work okay so um i think for me like i had mentioned earlier i was in that state of mind where work wasn't the only thing i wanted to focus on subconsciously i was thinking that i wanted to change frameworks ways of working ways of living in my head and I had been thinking about the decision of a masters for a long time but mm-hmm. I just like never knew what I was just confused and just somehow I had this internal gut feel that the time felt right and I was very very sure that illustration is what I want to do for me those travel sketchbooks that I've done they've always been a hobby but I have seen an like a little bit on the internet and I've seen a little bit of people doing visual journalism and actually making a living out of it like like i wanted to build a lifestyle for myself where i'm not sitting alone in front of the computer every day where my mm. work involves field work where my work involves meeting other people but it also involves deep creation and um, i was luckily at a position where my parents could afford to send me outside 
and my parents were like do it now or your time is going to go away we're not going to send you after a certain point of time and i was more than 100% sure that i'm ready to focus on illustration like right i'm ready to settle down instead of dabbling in all these things i want to focus within illustration and knowing myself like i work very well in academic structures i'm very efficient and just the time felt right it felt like it was a good time for change it right. was a good time to call the shots and make a, a little more independent decisions about how i want to structure my own work and life and i never wanted to go to the united states to study but i spent a lot of time trying to look for illustration programs but honestly i found the program at sva to be really comprehensive and mm-hmm. detailed because it was a really good mix of basic fundamentals a good mix of writing and from what i had heard from what everybody had told me people who'd already been there that new york is the hub of design and if you are spending that time and money going outside spend it in a city where you're going to 50% of your learning is going to come from hustling in the city which is true i it's it's an incredibly fast paced city that was the first thing i noticed when i visited new york recently in fact we that's where we met for the first time right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and thanks for taking me around sva of course oh, yeah uh so like i was there for a week and in that week that one week i was uh, called to attend around 5 to 6 talks uh, and uh, network with so many people I could just imagine if I was there for more than an year yeah like the kind of contacts you build the kind of uh, support system that you have and the kind of you know things you are exposed to would be crazy I mean yeah. that's what people are paying for I guess I I think so and like for me one of the biggest things was like I was out of my comfort zone so that inertia that sometimes you know just that oh I don't want to leave my room I don't want to get out of the blanket you're right f- I am not at home anymore and I'm not in Delhi you know I am in a new city. I have to learn. I I'm starting from scratch. Nobody knows me there. So, I have all this motive and reason to really get out and about. And uh I was I'm still getting used to New York. It's been a year <laughs> and a half and I'm not one of those people who I did not fall in love with the city. I was quite skeptical. I was extremely homesick. I did not like the winter. Like right. I loved what I was studying. I absolutely loved school, but New York was as a city it's exhausting. It's It's exhausting. It's, it's fast-paced. It's like, like you end up living a week in a day. Yeah, it's right. like even if you like the first few months over there like I didn't know. I always felt like I was missing out on something, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, but that entire situation just being out of home and being on my own, it was a lot of growing up. Right. And going into masters i had promised myself a few things that one no more all nighters like oh second was that i no matter how much work i have i have to cook my own food and i have to exercise at least two three times during the week mm-hmm. and honestly i was like even if my work is not 100% if my work goes down to even 80% because i have to cook my own food and exercise it's fine it's worth it because I didn't want to go into masters with the same approach at NIT that slog for 4 years and then focus on myself after that. Like after NIT I ended up losing my sense of identity. I defined myself by the work I did. And going into masters I really wanted to just make peace with the fact 
that I want to build sustainable habits. I don't want to finish a project by staying up a week, a whole, all nights in a week just so that I can do the best. No, I want to do it by doing all these practices, spending time with my friends, cooking, exercising, doing this all the side because that's what I want my life to be. I don't want my life to be about work. I want it to be about health and people I love also. Masters is the testing ground for me to set those habits right. right. And is the work environment outside India, like at least study or work environment outside India, conducive to that? Or does it encourage that more? What do you feel? If you have I... to contrast it with uh, uh, how you have worked in an agency, you worked uh, as an internal designer, you have studied in an Indian design college. I honestly don't know. I think the biggest way for you to change your habits, it comes from an internal reason because right. if you look at schools in the US, the studios are open 24-7. Over there also you're encouraged to, you know, work however much you want, work as much. But it's just, I mean, for me growing up as an adult, I was like, I want to have a life. And I, right. and I don't want my life to be like, yay, I'm happy doing work all the time. Right. Like, as I grow as a person and a professional, I want to slow down. And slowing down doesn't mean stop working hard. Right. Slowing down and hard work can very much go hand in hand. But I am in the process of readjusting what my definition of success and self-worth is. I feel like I can live with lesser money. I can live without fame. But I can't live without good health and peace of mind. And going mm. forward, that's my... Conscious. That's choice. a conscious decision that I'm making. Right, right, right. And uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the curriculum at SVA. So if you have to contrast it with uh, what you were taught in NID, how is it different in fundamental sense? So people ask me this question a lot. And what I like to say is that I feel like it's... It's like comparing apples to oranges because one, in NID I went for an undergrad right. and in SV I've gone for my master's. Those are two fundamentally very different things. Right, right, right. The approach for myself and at an undergrad level was to expose myself to a lot of things right. and, you know, set the foundation right. For master's I'm going with the assumption that, okay, I know how to draw. But mm. now I want to get deeper into it. I want to find my niche. Like I want to spend a lot of time on figuring out what is it that I really, really want to do and how am I going to do it? How am I going to make money doing it? Right. That's my approach for masters. So I'm being taught completely different things. Right. And with masters for what I've realized is that the more you go in knowing what you want out of the masters, the more you can get out of it. I see. Like for me, it was really good that I took a break after undergrad. I worked for two, three years and then I went because I had a little industry experience. I knew what are the things I liked in the industry. Like I knew that I don't like working in a studio 24 seven. I right. don't like it. I would not have known that had I never worked straight after college. So masters is all about like I went in with the intention that I want to figure out how I want to take my journaling practice forward and right. that's what I'm doing. So it's everything is far, far more intentional with a master's program. There are a lot of cultural differences between yeah. studying in India and studying in the US. Um, that's and, what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, 
NID was a tiny campus, you know, 100, 120 people a year. But it was a very generous space, like in the sense like right. I'm enrolled as a graphic design student. But if a faculty is OK with it, there is no problem with me going and attending a textile design class. Right. If I have the time for it and if the faculty is open with it, I can do type design with clay for all I want. In the US, it's really different. I mean, it's a society that runs on capitalism. And I also understand that, you know, when a, when an institution scales up from 100 to 1,000 people, there's bound to be organizational changes to make sure right. things are efficient. Like this is New York. Campuses are spread all over the city. Like if there's a maker studio right under, like I'm on the 11th floor, and if that's on the 7th floor, like a five-minute staircase down, if I want an appointment to make something at 1.15 and it's 1 o'clock, I still have to go online on my laptop, enough. make that appointment, and only then I can know. I still understand that because it's more accountability, you know. Right. You have someone who's walking from a 30-minute campus away to come, and if, they, and if they haven't booked an appointment, they go and get a machine. It's a waste of time for them. Right. But then there are some really annoying things also. Like, you know, the process of a creative education is like, or the process of creation is like, you go with a mindset, you iterate a lot and different things happen. Like, you know, right. this one project I was working on at the beginning of the semester, I had no idea where it was going to go. And maybe in the last month, I realized, oh, this project needs me to do some pottery. Right. But the way things work in America is like, unless you've already paid extra for the ceramic studio mm. or you've already signed up for a class, which you can only do in the beginning of the semester, Right. You can't do pottery, so you have to find, and it's not like it's not like twenty, thirty, forty dollars. It's like three hundred dollars, which right. is really expensive, which I find problematic. I'm like, I came from a small college, okay, with limited resources, and everyone was so generous. I think that's a, a cultural difference in terms of yeah. how the both the countries run. Even uh, among people, I have seen. We in India take generosity as a, a normal. As a norm. As a normal. Yeah. I mean, if you're not generous, you're a bad person. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, and like if you deny something to somebody, yeah, means uh, you are being extremely rude. And and then, and I actually went on thinking deeper about this, and I feel like this generosity sometimes always comes at someone's expense. Right. Human labor is so expensive in the US, mm. which is why if you want to sign up for a screen printing studio or a pottery studio, you have to pay that money. Right. In India, by nature, when you're in a tidy community, people go out of the way for each other. And people do that there too. But, you know, it's maybe coming at the expense of the staff who work in these shops. Mm, and mm. then you know they have a fixed I salary see. that they're getting paid so i don't know what's right and what's, what's wrong right. but yeah, these uh, are the pointers where there are multiple variable factors that are working together yeah right like so. it could be cultural it could be uh, just because of the money factor. yeah there's anything yeah but yeah i know what you're talking about in fact the first reaction that i had when i saw a few colleges in new york like i went to parsons also SVA. Then Pratt is also there, right? Yeah. In Brooklyn. Yeah. So I saw all three of them and I was like, these campuses are tiny in comparison to campuses in India. Yeah. And also like the whole factor that you get uh, access to only few, what you pay for. <laughs> few regions. Yeah. Like not just like you can you cannot like yeah. uh, 
roam around like how we do here yeah so yeah like it, it's a it's just yeah it's just a cultural difference <laughs> let's talk about this one uh, project that you worked on while being at SVA mm-hmm. which you called unladylike yeah I, i was just curious that when you put out a story on instagram one fine day i think this is before this project yeah right uh you put out a story asking women that if they were a man for a day what would they like to do yeah i was just curious where is it leading to what i what do you mean by by this so later on i figured that yeah what, you were, <laughs> what the bigger game was yeah can you uh, tell us about that project Honestly when I put out that question I didn't know that it would lead up to this project. Ah. I don't exactly remember why I put that question out there. It's just that I mean growing up as a woman in India at some point it becomes the norm that you have to alter your own behaviors for your own safety rather than the environment being fixed. Yeah. And that enrages me. Like from the tiniest thing that like women's jogging pants don't have pockets. Like where the hell do i put my keys you know yeah. and like and one with pockets will cost three times more i'm like why i mean i i can't believe that there's no pocket in most of the garments made for women and it's just ridiculous how women are ignored in so many aspects of city planning of yeah basic day to day life you know like like it's ridiculous i've grown up from the day that i've hit puberty it's my job to Wear a certain. If it's forty-five degrees, I still can't wear shorts and go on the metro. My parents will be freaking out at home if I'm doing that. As I've been growing up, it's like I refuse to believe the fact that you know, for me to be safe, I have to be sitting home by myself at nine o'clock. That I simply cannot go out on the streets. I refuse to accept that. I may settle for it now, but I don't want that to be a norm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And. and i was just curious that these are the things i experience in delhi i was just curious what do women experience in different parts of india um what do women experience in other parts of the world now that i'm studying with people from a lot of different nationalities mm-hmm. and so i just put that question out there and and i'm also like why do males have this certain entitlement or privilege that any other gender doesn't in the end like i also put a question out there that what would you do if you were a woman for a day right for and, a man yeah and i got a lot of responses and i noticed that there was a really stark difference between yeah. the women's responses yeah. and the men's responses I, in fact you know what the strange part is i saw you put out that question then i started thinking i was thinking still i was like there's like i mean i couldn't come up with an answer to that question Yeah and I was like you know a lot of the women's responses some were funny some were really sad but you know they were like I would go on a scooty at marine drive at midnight one was like I would go to the dargah at Nizamuddin and I would stay for the all night qawali and walk on the streets of yeah. Delhi you know um, one friend said that I would take a lot of pictures with my cat and not be labeled as a crazy cat lady you know and really funny things and um I got a lot of responses from men and I could categorize a lot of those responses were like I want to know what it's like to have a period I want to know what it's like to be pregnant I want to breastfeed I want to experience what it's like to be catcalled so I could categorize them these are anatomical things that you want to experience whereas for women it's like basic rights of expression that they are yearning for which leads me to the conclusion that binaries are garbage <laughs> 
like why why should your gender or your anatomy define how you experience the world and i found the women's responses naturally far more relatable and in spn our second semester we have a few months that we work on our own book anything of our choice and i decided to illustrate some of the women's responses and uh, it was a very frustrating and enjoyable process for me to talk to friends family ask this question around and just just see the responses and it's a project that's really close to my heart i don't think these are things you ever stop thinking about they're there and how was it received when you put it out i think it was received well <laughs> like uh, i honestly i move on from projects really yeah. fast and, and I, i was i was just wondering there is always some idiots who want to be too edgy and yeah. comment on these things in a edgy way did you receive any oh, of yeah. those oh yeah i mean none of them is memorable enough to or that i've held on to for <laughs> now but of course a lot of responses you know on instagram i get when i put such questions out there there'll be a lot of men who are like oh yeah why do you have to spend money on vaccine who's saying get vaxed i'm like shut up you have not been raised in an environment where you're looking at the tv every day and telling yourself that you're ugly if you don't look a certain way you know if you don't go up with that kind of conditioning you can't just say that oh if you stop vaxing all of your troubles will go away it's real simple like if i have to just explain to those people yeah if we take another context which is the fairness the yeah. fair skin in india is considered like there's some kind of weird standard that you are captain if yeah. you have a fairer skin yeah and nobody is telling people as such to use fairness creams yeah. but people see it everywhere and i have seen people who are otherwise so confident still use fairness cream yeah it's just it's cause because you grow up with you that you grow up with that you can't it's it's part of your growing up i mean yeah. you grow up with your grandmother's telling you to do this upton that so that you look better oh yeah it's so i'm just, like what is this better yeah what is this better i don't understand i mean i i just remembered another when i was talking about these women's pants having lack of pockets this one guy actually tried to argue with me and explain that how it's cheaper to make bags than to put pockets on women's clothing like legit try to and i didn't know what to do i was just like well good the, luck for your mother your wife your sister whatever <laughs> to deal with you this these are the kind of gems you get from the internet yeah. right like people behind the keyboard without any question just getting infuriated and yeah but any, anything but, but that's a good thing they are exposing themselves out to yeah and i feel like it's good for me also i try not to just dismiss it and tell them to shut up mm-hmm. though i feel like it sometimes but i feel like one that's how you realize that is the mindset that ultimately you need to change right not your other 3000 followers who already are progressive and liberal yes yes that tiny 1% is the one you don't want to change but you want to make them think or question yeah and if you are provoking them enough just to think that's enough that's enough i have seen that uh, there's a bubble that people create yeah and uh, being from a small city i know that such a huge bubble the bigger city people live in yeah yeah and uh, you're still studying at sva 
right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you're working on your thesis project, which is in process right now. Yeah. Uh, when I was in New York uh, and I visited you at SVA, you showed me a little bit of that and introduced me to the project itself. And I found it really interesting that you're documenting the people who work with plants and showing how the relationship between humans and plant is like. Can you tell us about that project? How did it start and uh, what made you think about this topic? And um, how are you incorporating visual journalism into this? Um, so, like I told you, I've always enjoyed location drawing. And mm -hmm. ever since my early NID days, I have this habit of having a sketchbook with me everywhere. Right. Um, you know, it's this one activity that feels like meditation. And I'm so focused and so present in my environment it's pure joy and uh, for a long time I felt like there's a lot of scope in this process for it to be used as an actual research method right like because when you're sitting in a public space and you're drawing and strangers are walking past you you know and they're witness to the process of your pencil marks going from marks to a complete drawing right they're engaged and this process of live drawing um I actually really like it when people come and interject and talk to me while I'm drawing because my drawing changes. Uh -huh. If I'm sitting at the top of a mountain and it's freezing, my drawing will look different. If I'm sitting in a humid forest, my mm -hmm. drawing will look different. And so the environment and the people around me become a part of that sketch. It's a part of the performance, right? Yeah. yeah. And for me, I think a process like this, you know, with very simple like a pen, pencil and watercolor, everybody can relate to those mediums. It breaks the ice, like people can trust you, they, they can see you're not, you're doing something nice and they're more than willing to talk and share with you and I kind of wanted to test out this theory that can this process be used in a more meaningful way rather than just, you know, doing pictures for myself and recording like my own journal, can I introduce more intentional narrative into it? Mm -hmm. So for my thesis project, I picked a subject that's close to my heart, which is plants and green spaces, and I put it in this context. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I'm trying to do right now. Should we take the discussion to the park we see outside? Yeah, let's that'd do be, that. That'd be fun because, uh, yeah, like this topic is such... Okay, we continue there. So I grew up in an industrial area in Delhi and I was surrounded by noise, factories and flyovers. And in the midst of all this, my house had a small garden. Mm -hmm. And I played in this garden every day. Like I would make different soil mixtures and combinations. I would make different objects with these clay mixtures, gili mitti, suki mitti. You know, I had read somewhere that um, Diamonds don't look like diamonds when they're found. So I used to dig in my garden and whatever tiny shiny stone I found, I would take to my grandfather be like, is this a diamond? Is this a diamond? Can you get it found out? Right. But, um, and I distinctly remember the day that that garden had to be grazed so that our factory could expand. Right. Me and my siblings, we were devastated that day. But my uncle and aunt are really, really fond of gardening. So is my dad. and. Within a year or two, the terraces of our house, the terrace was transformed. Mm -hmm. Like they shifted all their plants. They built a small greenhouse on the chhat. And like in February and March, when it's flowering time, you cannot even see the ground. 
it's mm. like if you take a photograph mm -hmm. there you'll think you're in the middle wow. of a forest that's in uh, which place this is an industrial area in narayana in delhi oh okay like yes. you know we shared the border of our factory was with the maruti factory mm -hmm. and but when you were standing on a terrace you really didn't feel like you were in an industrial area i so my love for green spaces i'm pretty sure began there because mm -hmm. they would involve me in all aspects of the garden sometimes helping them in shoveling sometimes mm -hmm. helping them in watering the plants my taiji tauji would take me on walks around delhi you know they would teach me how to identify trees from the leaf shapes right so and i also grew up going for a lot of hikes to the mountains with my dad mm -hmm. and the ultimate part the intention for a hike was to be surrounded by nature right so this attachment to nature it it's just how i was brought up so right. it came from a very young age and even when i moved to new york last year for my masters i used to get homesick a lot like you know i was right. not used to that winter the short days and i would really get miserable and the one thing that would help me was mm -hmm. forcing myself to get out of my house and going to the park right. like I have the fortune of living close to a lot of, New York has a lot of public parks. Right. And I would go for a walk whenever I could. And every time I went for a walk, something good happened. <laughs> so I thought like this summer I was I had started going regularly to the Riverside Park near my house and I observed that everyone who came to the park seemed happier. Right. Which got me thinking like why do people seem so happy in green spaces you know right right what is it about plants that makes people more happier right so through the medium of drawn journalism what i'm doing is that i'm going around new york and i'm interviewing scientists gardeners botanists mm -hmm. florists bioartists city planners anyone who works with plants in any capacity right and i'm asking them what do they do why is the work that they do important in the context of our changing world mm -hmm. and why do they think plants make us happy uh, right. and it's as simple as that like i have as an illustrator i've always felt that it's a really indulgent subject that I, you know i want to draw plants i want to draw flowers and i felt like why they're already beautiful objects what good am i doing by drawing them again so i was always hesitant on doing a project which felt so indulgent i went this summer to an exhibition in the new york botanical gardens mm -hmm. and it was an exhibition which recreated the works of a brazilian landscape architect his name was roberto burl marx and he said the most incredible things about plants and mm -hmm. you know things like i'll read out some of the quotations that i noted down over there he said one must bring nature into the reach of man and above all take man back to nature he also said to preserve plant species through the composition of gardens is a way of protecting future generations from an extreme solitude right like he said beautiful things you know and early in his career he had traveled all around south america with a botanist a friend who was a botanist to study plants in their natural habitats and the knowledge he gained from these excursions with a group of landscape architects and botanists and other scientists was fundamental in his unique garden aesthetic he said to have bought modern garden aesthetic to brazil and when i look at it like you know and and then there's a board at the new york botanical garden that says after all plants make life on earth possible 
no plants, no people. And it was just that when I shifted the way that I was thinking and I just framed the context better, I was like, this is not an indulgent subject at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it is so relevant to our time. Right. Um, it's what I was looking for. I was looking to have conversations with people who were practicing s- slow living, working with plants right. is you're tending to them it's so slowness all of these things coming together yeah. like your obsession with plants yeah with science way. it all seemed to be coming together and i was really excited by it right and sva also as part of its uh, curriculum we have the opportunity to reach out to any artist and if they like a project they can be our thesis advisor uh-huh so as part of this i when i was thinking and figuring out maybe this is what i want to do I had been the fo- I had been following the work of this uh, graphic journalist named Wendy McNaughton mm-hmm. who is a San Francisco based graphic journalist and I loved her work and I just wrote her an email mm-hmm. and she actually responded uh. <laughs> and she has been amazing she has been so encouraging and like you know I-, I was terrified of walking up to a stranger and asking them if I could interview them right and right. she had been so so supportive just the way that i think and these approach these things she had been really nice in encouraging me to the fact that it feels really normal for me to ask a stranger that hey can i record a conversation right can you tell us few uh, tips that she gave you regarding this like being comfortable reaching out to people for documenting them? yeah so In the beginning I was really apprehensive of asking for so much of people's times you know I was already conscious about asking to record and I found it extremely invasive to walk up to a stranger and talk right. to them take up so much of their time and ask like hey can I record this hmm. so Wendy was so encouraging she told me that one as women we are always wary of our interactions with strangers in public spaces mm-hmm. and we are used to having a lot of unpleasant encounters where our privacy feels invaded right, right. so she's like maybe that's why you're feeling so hesitant right. and she was absolutely right because i was i was scared of What somebody else felt. yeah i was scared of somebody else feeling the same way right but that also gives me the strength that because i felt that way i would never on purpose make someone feel that way mm-hmm. so what wendy told me is that all that you can do is make sure that the person whose time you're asking you can make sure that it's a positive experience for them right i agree and if that. and if they leave this conversation feeling happy you've done your job right 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 and like she also told that told me to look at it from a different way she's like you have the gift or the opportunity to share stories that would otherwise go untold and sh- and she's like use that of course everybody has the right to say to no to you that they don't want to do it and right. the moment say they so no agree to it that's right. it but you have a skill and you're using it for a good thing so use it right. and you know just the perspective of a woman who's been on the field and who's felt the same thing that i couldn't even articulate mm-hmm. that gave me so much confidence that you know what's the worst i'll just go and do it someone's going to say no to me that's it right in fact uh, all those three tips i can apply to my own podcast i feel like this is this clarifies a lot of things for yeah. me in fact and uh, who did you shortlist and how do you find these interesting people so it was a very organic process for me because 
again i am in a new city i am constantly exploring this city right i mean you can't plan out to yeah and i made a very things. conscious decision when i started this project that i'm not going to wikipedia or, or google a list of gardens in new york i'm like ah. this project is not an encyclopedic project it's a right. personal project and i want to make sure that i discover the things i've been internally setting out to discover with this project so i was winging it every day so <laughs> what i started doing was like how it how i started this that in the summer i moved to a new place and it was close to this park called the riverside park in new mm -hmm. york and i used to go for a run every day and what happens is when you go to the same place at the same time every day you start seeing familiar faces right and basically i chanced upon this community garden within the park and it's called the garden people and i started going there pretty often you know and i right. took my sketchbook there and uh, every saturday they have a volunteer program that people have little plots of land on a rolling basis in that garden mm -hmm. and they are working and anyone can come and volunteer and help them with little little tasks so i used to go there every saturday and take my sketchbook and sit there and draw and i didn't have to do anything <laughs> this one day like i literally look up from a sketchbook and there's a ring of women standing around me asking me what am i doing and they asked wow. me to flip through my entire sketchbook i told them what i'm doing for my thesis and they were like yes you should do this your sketches are so good we'll talk to you about whatever you want wow <laughs> and it was so nice and like you know that was like my starting point it right. started with like the simplest of there were a lot of women coming in all seasons to garden women who had difficulty walking women with extreme arthritis young women old women and they're gardening without fail every week so i mean i just asked some of them you know like what gives you joy by doing this so this one woman named rosemary who uses a walker to get around she struggles with walking but she's mm -hmm. still gardening every week mm -hmm. she told me have you ever touched a tree you should touch them with your hands they have their own energy you'll feel it Wow. <laughs> and um, another woman told me that uh, her name is Frances and she's like it's a very rewarding place thousands of people come here sometimes they just sit on a bench maybe they have lost a loved one or they've had a breakup it's not always a happy place it's a healing place wow wow <laughs> <laughs> and um, one guy said something really funny and this was just a stranger i bumped into while my on my walk you know i didn't even record him i just remembered something he said i asked him why does he do it you know he was a banker and did it volunteered at the park in his free time he's like um i asked him why does he like watering these plants he's like you feed them you water them they grow up and they're not a pain in the ass <laughs> <laughs> wow so um little bitter in life but that's uh, that's how it is <laughs> so it started with these really tiny just anecdotes right. and then i became a little more intentional about it so you know i love new york botanical gardens it was a very important place for me why this project began this right it struck me there that you know i can do something potentially meaningful so i just went on the new york uh, botanical gardens website and i wrote like some 15 emails to the scientists who work there uh -huh. okay and, and it's been a great coincidence that so far every person who has so generously gotten back to me with their time it's all been women all of them <laughs> which is kids coincidence it's i don't know it's incredible okay. and i wasn't expecting any reply back because i mean it's a big institution these are busy right. people 
I'm just a student and I don't know jack about science and I'm just writing to them. And within a day, I had three replies from people at very high positions in the New York Botanical Gardens. And, and I was freaking out before going to interview them. I was telling Wendy like, you know, I don't know anything about science. What am I going to ask them? And Wendy was like, say that. <laughs> say that you're not a scientist. Wow. Tell them what you're doing and just say that. Explain it to me if I'm a 12 year old. I'm just here to listen. Wow. And people were so generous with their time. Right. I met. is a very wise person. Yeah. I must say. Like, <laughs> She's incredible. She's incredible. Um, so I met this woman named Dr. Ina Vanderbroek, who is an ethnobotanist at the New York Botanical Gardens. Ethnobotanist? What is that? So she works in the field of biology, ethnography, botany and community health. So she works with a lot of um, immigrant communities from the Caribbean, from Latin America, especially people who've migrated to New York. And you know, from their own traditional medicine system, they're now integrating with the public health system in New York. Right. So there's always a gap or a miscommunication in the medicine they take. So she is trying to reduce that gap. I won't go into the technical aspects of what she said and what she does. You'll have to read my book for that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she said some wonderful things. A lot of her field work involves going to some forest communities in Jamaica. And she said that when she's in the forest, she feels happy. She said nature is the closest to religion she will ever get. She said that in the West, we are taught that a doctor knows everything and a patient should just surrender to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's also recently been promoted that everything that's technologically advanced is better. Right, right, yeah. right, right. That's how and, it's and it's better perceived. than anything that's natural. Right. You know, and, and it's, she's like, it's not that I'm against modern medicine, not at all. It's mm -hmm. important, but how dependent we get on it is a little problematic. And I feel like we are natural beings. We come yeah. from nature, but sometimes in the in city life, we forget that. Right. And the pace at which we are growing, we are quite literally forgetting our roots, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We have privilege, you know. We have privilege to go to parks. We have privilege to live in places where there's greenery. A lot of people don't have that privilege. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah, I feel like yeah. that is why people should be exposed to places like these to have a chance to see what it's like to be surrounded by greenery. It's going away so fast. Right. And uh, yeah, we can already in here. In fact, while we're sitting, we're sitting in a park, but more than hear, birds, we are hearing machinery. Yeah, the machinery. That's thing. Yeah, like I mean, this is a clear depiction of what is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, who else did you meet? So um, I met this young woman named Alex Crowder, and I had the most interesting conversation with her. Um, she is a florist, and I met her at the climate strike in New York, you know. Her sign said, florists for climate change. And I was immediately fascinated. So I went to her and I asked her if I could come yeah. meet her at a different time. And she said that as, as florists, we should be at the front of the line building a framework that fights against climate collapse because we take so much from the natural world, you know. Mm. We take from the earth to make a living. So how can we not be cognizant of what we're doing? Right, right, right. And uh, she spoke to me about the industry, the massive carbon footprints and the 
chemicals that are used in transporting exotic flowers from across borders you know mm-hmm. and how she is attempting in her own practice to be more sustainable to use more local produce and to talk to the florists she works with and to talk to the people who supply her the material to think more deeply about the practices they're engaging in right and um you know she herself grew up in the woods in the midst of nature and she feels such a connection to it she's like i always remember where a plant comes from and that's mm. what drives her to fight for climate justice right but otherwise like people start thinking that florist as a profession might be antagonistic to uh, having to save the planet because i mean some people think it's a frivolous use of the nature but i mean i asked her one of the same questions that you know growing up you've been taught don't pluck flowers it's bad to pluck right. flowers and yet at the same time this industry is flourishing and plants do bring bring people enormous joy right but you know when you look at it that way every industry has impact as designers we use paper right we are consuming trees right But human existence is human existence <laughs> but you have to think about what is wasteful and what is not wasteful you know if i use and i'm using these papers i'm using them for some good purpose right i'm doing it with an intention i'm just not just mindlessly drawing a line on a paper and throwing it it's with a bigger purpose right and it's justified i'm aware of it and i but i feel it's justified i'm not going to stop drawing the point is not to stop living our lives and to in the process that we don't use anything at all but to be aware of how much we are consuming i was in oroville at this one time and i wanted a twig or a branch for something i was shooting and there oroville has a lot of urban farms so i went to someone and asked you know can i pick up something that's fallen from the ground and she's like it's a plant it's grow back it's going to grow back just cut it you know what's the big deal and it's fine like but if people start doing it mindlessly without right. thinking million times that this thing that's when the problem right. happens like i was in uh, himachal for a while and uh, i was uh, surprised that in one of the villages there was a, a lack of availability of uh, meat during certain time and i asked the villagers and they were like this is a time when we do not cut the animal like to bring the balance in how much consumption we do like to bring out that balance and these are the natural practices that how people have been doing and yeah exactly when you keep this in check that's just the natural way the world works but when capitalism comes into the picture there's no stop there is never that point where you stop it's always more 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 so <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what stage is this project on right now? So I'm at the stage where I've interviewed four or five people and uh, there's a few more that I want to interview. I want to flesh and I'm basically I'm at the stage where I'm editing the interviews that I've done. Right. I'm combining the drawings I've done on location. I'm mixing some more that I'm doing in my studio. But it's just more of that. There's a few more people in mind that I want to interview. I'm going to do that in the next few months and then I'm going to try and look for a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best of luck with this project. I think it's quite interesting what you're doing and considering that it combines all your interests together. It's amazing. And what's next? Next after that is hopefully I'm done with graduation and I'm going to figure out what kind of a part-time job I'm looking for, how I can start a freelance practice eventually in I'm going to be in New York for a while. so just figuring how to find work 
Ishita, thanks for being on the podcast. It was amazing having you here. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. <laughs>